0: Lord, thank You so much for the privilege of being able to tonight fall into Your embrace where it's quiet and safe, where storms are stilled and hearts are put at rest, where we could come to You weary and heavy laden but find rest, where we could come thirsty and find ourselves fountains hungry and find ourselves satisfied. And so Lord, you know what could be any and every obstacle in this room tonight of what it is you want to accomplish. You know what dirt from the day could be carried on our shoulders, our minds, or hearts. You know what encouragements and discouragements and false bravados and weaknesses and moments of, of becoming aware and all of those things, God, all those things that come with our day. Lord, You know what came into this room when we came in. You know what we brought with us. But You love us. And You want us. And You crave intimacy with us. So as we go into this text now, Lord, don't let it just be a transferring of information. Let it be truly hearts rent open and ready for the planting of Your Word that You would live out Your life through us. And in doing so, we would find ourselves forever changed. I pray that Your Word would burst open and come alive before us so that tonight we could have so much fun being with You in Your Word. I pray that You would immerse me in Your Spirit, that I would disappear, and then You would fill me to overflowing, that You would do through me what I cannot humanly do. We lift up Sarah, and we pray Your divine power and wisdom over her and her team is there in Brazil we pray for our friend saeed in the even prison in iran that you would give him an endurance that only your saints could have we pray for the salvation of every one of his tormentors we pray lord for those right now searching for answers at the boston Marath- that were at the boston marathon That somehow what man intended for evil, You would use for good. So save Boston. Not just lives, but Boston as a result. And as we lift up, God, the salvation of our country and our city, we pray tonight that You would radically move in us. Transform us. Revolutionize us. Correct, challenge, equip, encourage. Encourage and equip for every good work. And make us those, Lord, tonight that walk out more like you than when we came in. So we commit this night to you now. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Read along with me. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you, you judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man... You who judge in practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and in heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life To those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul who does evil, for the Jew first, then also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, or to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, now indeed you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law and make your boast in God, and you know His will and approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, will you, therefore... Who teach another? Do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For in the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Our text now takes us to the second portion of God's presentation on His way to chapter 3. If you flip to chapter 3, verse 9, it says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that there are alike, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not one. No, not one. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus chapter 1, starting in verse 16, when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power to those who believe, for the Jew first and then to the Gentile, the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he tells us that Paul will not shrink away from the gospel. It is the power of salvation, not your ability to argue, not your endless dusty books, as nice as they might be, or all of your argument classes, or your six and seven degrees in logic, the gospel is a simple primitive tool to transform every human life. Then from that verse following through the rest of the chapter, when he says the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their ungodliness, God starts to point out the universal need for a universal Savior. That's the point. The idea of the gospel, the question is, well, who, to whom does the gospel apply? Does the gospel apply to the drug-dealing, nun-slapping, baby-kicking, puppy-stealing, maniac out there right now selling gasoline, petrol for kids to smell on the street corner? Does it apply to the person that's in the stained-glass house with the organ playing in the background while George Beverly sang, Jay, Shay sang at their birth and Billy Graham inaugurated their confirmation who needs it and what the bible makes clear is that every human being in the world needs jesus christ it doesn't matter where you've come from it doesn't matter what race it doesn't matter how tall or short, fat or thin, rich or poor, old or young, educated or not, it doesn't matter who you are, you need Jesus. And God made it simple for a reason. Because the church and he knew this would think it would would try to claim it was too difficult and thus would sit on their couch and do nothing. But if it really is that simple, every saved person, every believer in Jesus Christ, every new creation could share the gospel of Jesus Christ, because if it is the power of salvation and you can't share it, how do you know you're saved? If I say, well, what saved? you?" And you said, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and he rose again. I say, thank you for preaching the gospel. Now, go tell someone else. In chapter one, from that point on through the rest of that chapter, if you remember, that was the trading. They traded in God's glory, and they went and what they received, then they were given over to given up to uncleanness. They traded God's truth in, and God gave them up to vile passions. They traded in even the remembrance of God, and God gave them over to a debased mind. And if you have it in the simplest sense, chapter one is about the unrighteous, and the unrighteous that know they're not righteous need Jesus. Now, the Bible makes clear by chapter 3, no one's righteous, which means that everybody is unrighteous. But not everybody thinks so. There's the problem. Some knew it. I knew I needed saving. I didn't know who could save me, because I didn't know Jesus till I was 19. But I knew I was a mess. And because I knew I was a mess, I knew I needed help. I also knew that there were things called help that weren't much help at all, at best. And there were a lot of things marketed as help that were nonsense. And some of them that were the most marketed were the worst. Chapter 1 says the unrighteous need Jesus. Chapter 2 says the self-righteous need Jesus too. And you're going to fit into one of two categories tonight. Well, three. Either you're unrighteous, self-righteous, or Christ-righteous tonight. If you think about it, every religion on the planet, outside of Jesus Christ, is a self-righteous religion. Because you do it, baby. You make it happen. You pray. You take your trips. You kneel on rice. You say that. However, for how many times, you light your candles, you give your money, you fast, you do whatever. Who did that stuff? Yourself did it. Who made you righteous? Yourself did. And by virtue of the title, if you yourself make yourself righteous, you are self-righteous. It's amazing when you share Jesus with someone and you tell them how he saved you, transformed you, washed the filth and the muck off of you, and then instead gave you a brand new being, how they'll look and go, how self-righteous you are. And I'm like, actually, I am the only person on the planet not self-righteous. I could not make myself right. Jesus made me right. I am Jesus righteous. In chapter 1, if you knew that, you were unrighteous. You have two choices. You could either pretend and try to make your culture around it, which is where the chapter ended, or you could actually deal with it. Tonight, I'm here to tell you, deal with your unrighteousness. Chapter 2 now deals with the old wretch, if you remember from last week. Those that were raised in the religious home, which, by the way, by chapter 3, God will make very clear there are real benefits to being raised in a godly home but it will not save you. If you were raised in a home of parents that were happily married, that does not mean you're married until you make that choice. You could say, but my parents were awesome parents. They're still married to this day. And I'd say, congratulations, you're the child of parents that are still married today. Say, my parents were Christians. Congratulations, they're Christians. Are you? God is so in love with you individually that he will not take group reservations, nor family plots. He's going to take you by yourself. Because it doesn't say, I call my sheep by species, phyla, family, or genus, or even by group. He says, I call my sheep by name. And not surname, by the way. In chapter 2 he's addressing a group of people remember we're here in Rome Paul had never been to Rome one of the two letters that he had written to that he had never been to this in Colossae which tend to be then fundamentally mostly about what Jesus who Jesus is and what Jesus is and what he's done and why now all of the other churches tend to or all of the other letters tend to be corrective because Paul's been there and he has that relationship we don't read that Paul is doing any real major correction here that he seems aware of he's just making sure you understand Since the church wasn't started by him, he wants to make sure we're all on the same page. But there appears to be one problem in the church. And that problem is that those who were raised in the godly home or in the religious home tended to look at those who have given their life to Christ and looked at them and looked down upon them because they're quite rough around the edges. Personally, I love it. I love watching people give their life to Christ. And so he addresses them and tells them, Listen, If it weren't for the grace of God, you would go to hell just like them. Your sin may not be the same sin, but it's sin nonetheless. Therefore, you are inexcusable. That's how it starts. And if you remember, it started the last chapter when he started developing in verses 18 and 19 when he talked about God revealing himself. His invisible attributes and his divine Godhead are clearly seen by what he has made, so man is without excuse. The unrighteous are without excuse because God still revealed himself to them. The righteous, or I should say the self-righteous, have no excuse because they actually have the law. He says, how could you possibly think you have an excuse when you have the very thing that testifies against you now by the end of the chapter and i just want to sort of salt this as we dig through the text a bit by the end of the chapter we get this whole circumcision issue and obviously that seems very off color in a mixed group of people but can i say and that's normally not the case with us because that's really not the sign of our covenant we don't do that for the purpose of saying congratulations you're a christian we circumcise our boys but we do do something within the liturgical part of our family that's very similar. And I'm going to dare say it because I've always gone straight for the throat. Why change that now? That's baptism. There are those that will tell you they're saved because somewhere about the age of less than one, they were dipped in some water and a man spoke Latin over them. Now, clearly according to Scripture... Baptism as a public testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Buried with him in baptism, raised in the newness of life. Glorious way of describing to people who don't have an eternal perspective what Jesus Christ has done for you spiritually. He took the nasty old rotten you, buried that person at the cross, and then so forth, and then rose in the newness of life, and now it says, he who is in Christ is a new creation. Glory to God for that. And the reason I say that is, is that though you might say, well, I'm safe. I don't do this circumcision. I don't know about that. I'm I'm, I'm fine. Listen, in the end of it all, are you still hanging on whatever your ritual is? Or have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? So therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, you who judge. And obviously, that's what happens here with these people who were raised in the religious environment. The word for judge, again, krino. And we see it here used in three, four different times, actually, in this verse. For it says, in whatever way you judge, same word, Another you condemn, katakrino, yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now Jesus had said in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and it shall be forgiven. And don't forget that last part. Because God starts, he has this wonderful way of showing what the opposite of something is. He tells us about those who steal. He who steals, let him steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands that he would have something to give to those in need. When is a thief no longer a thief? Not when he stops stealing. When he starts giving. And our God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. Do you remember Zacchaeus having surrendered his life to Christ there in his own house, he says, look, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have wronged anyone, I will give them back fourfold. And Jesus is "Now salvation has come to this house today. Well, when does a person cease to judge? When they start to forgive. And we'll see what the problem with it is, first and foremost here is that the very thing you judge another on, you yourself are guilty of practicing yourself. In 1 Corinthians 11.31, it says, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. Verse 2 tells us the problem in regards to the standard. It says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And this becomes the difference. When you judge another individual, you have to use some form of standard. And there are only really two basic standards. There is the standard of yourself. And by the way, the standard of yourself could look good when you fantasize and actually think you're much more heroic than you are, if you're anything... Now, of course, I don't do that, but I'm pretty sure... No, I'm just kidding. Now, follow me on this. So what happens is, is I say, you know, if you say, how are you doing? I'm a good person. And say, why? You normally don't say, because look at all these good things I do. You tend to say instead, because I don't. I don't want I, I don't steal I haven't killed anyone and the worse you are the harder you have to stretch to make yourself look good right so then you think well are you better than half of the world's population you know I don't steal or some of us we might say I don't steal anymore I don't do the drugs I used to do I don't beat up people like I used to but it's fascinating when Jesus says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven and he says I never knew. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right? He doesn't say, and not not do what I told you not to. We tend to think our righteousness is because we didn't do all the things we could have done. Try that with a judge and see how that works. So you go and you run over somebody because you were having a bad day, and that pedestrian just looked perfect to get your anguish out on, and you dragged them for a little bit, ran them over, and stood before the judge and go, but you don't understand. When we were done, I reached through his pockets, pulled out all of his money, and gave it to one of those guys selling big issues. Do you really think that's going to work? But you don't understand. I never raped anyone. I mean, I don't beat up people normally. This is a one time offense. Take it easy on me. How many laws do you have to break to be a criminal? One. There's the problem. And he looks and he says, but let me tell you the other standard, the standard other than yourself, because that becomes the problem with us. Is when we condemn somebody, the reason why we would condemn somebody is because somehow we feel like we're better than that person. Because after all, if we thought they were better than us, how could we possibly condemn them? Do you remember John the Baptist when he sees Jesus? By the way, in your own time, I challenge you to think about this. Jesus comes to John the Baptist. Now, they know each other because they're related. Remember when Mary visited her? cousin or whatever the case, it doesn't make really clear what what relationship they have, but they're clearly related. When Jesus comes to John, John says, I should be baptized by you. Remember that? Now, if you read the rest of the text, there's something profound in it because he actually turns to his disciples after Jesus was baptized. And then he says, I wouldn't have known who the guy was except the one who sent me to baptize says that the one you see this Holy Spirit land on like a dove, that's your man. Put those two statements together. It wasn't that John knew that Jesus was the, the Christ, the Messiah. He just lived a life more righteous than even him. So when he looked at Jesus, he just... I mean, imagine how surprised you would be if your cousin was the one. You've known him a few days, and every time they've never done anything wrong, but you've never lived with him, right? So you think, well, he seemed like a nice guy, but I wouldn't have thought he was the Messiah. You know? and, and, but, but the understanding they have between the two of them, John looks and he goes, I should be baptized by you. And all they know is the relationship they've had before that point. And that's pretty radical. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, we read, there's another standard other than judging by yourself, because that one's always a slide rule kind of thing. I wouldn't judge somebody when I'm having a bad day. On a good day, maybe I could judge. But, and then of course, he says, no, 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 you have to, because no matter what the case is, no matter what you judge, you're going to be practicing it, and that condemns you. If you say that's bad, and that person should go to hell that did it, and you do it too, what have you, t- what have you said? But the other standard, he says, is according to truth. Now, truth is a standard that doesn't slide, it doesn't move, it doesn't change, it isn't environmental or relative, it's just standard. That's it. The problem is, if it's standard and solid, then every one of us has to stand before it at the same level. And that's the point of the law. Galatians makes clear that the law will make nobody righteous. The law was not intended to make anyone righteous. The law was there to prove... That you weren't righteous. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ, says Galatians. So that we would then turn to Him. The mirror will not make you beautiful. If If you're good looking, the mirror may show it. But the mirror isn't like the more you stare in the mirror, the better looking you're going to get. Now some of you might think, well that's what I used to put on my makeup. But I'm not saying if you're just staring at the mirror and not doing anything isn't going to change anything. But what it does do is prove areas that might need some correction. Ladies, men need it too. We just say, deal with it. We're ugly. Point made. Sorry, Lord. The law is the same. The law wasn't there so you could boast on it and go check it out. This thing says I'm perfect. The law was there as a mirror to prove that things need to be changed. So he says, in the very ways, but here's the beautiful part, is that Jesus didn't just come and preach truth according to truth, or the law according to truth. Listen to these two verses, both from the Gospel of John, both in chapter 1. In verse 14 it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of, listen, grace and truth. And there is the difference. And it'll tell us just three verses later in verse 17, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now look at, what the law, what Moses brought you was the law. This is it, here's your mirror, ain't is fine as you think you are. Jesus, on the other hand, brought two things. He brought truth in immovable standard, but also brought grace. That's the same one who could stare into the face of a woman who deserved to be stoned for her adultery and say, neither do I condemn you. And then he said, go and sin no more. There is grace and truth in one statement. And if I go to the law and approach it without mercy, those who use it without mercy die without mercy. That's what Scripture says. But if I go to the law and it humbles me, well, then I should be humble when I look at you and realize, as First Peter says, that we are joint heirs of the grace of life. Do you know what that means? Joint means we get it together. Heirs mean we both inherited it. Grace means neither of us deserved it. And what was it? Life. You got life and you didn't deserve it. I got life and I didn't deserve it. We got life together and we should both go, awesome, shouldn't we? And if we don't do that, we've got issues. Because what we've done is we've dissed the greatest gift ever given. Think about that. So do you think then, old oh man, you who judge, but practicing those same things, that you'll actually escape the judgment? And then he says this in verse 4 Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering? You like the word riches? Think about what that means. Someone who is rich means that they will have abundance by even when they die. They will never not have abundance. If somebody seemed like they had a lot, but they had a lot of bills coming, I wouldn't call them rich. Somebody who's rich will have more than they'll ever be able to spend. Let me say that again. Someone who's rich will have more than they'll ever be able to spend. And let me tell you how rich my God is. He is so rich... In goodness. So rich in forbearance. And in long suffering. Macrophemia. Phemia means wrath or violence or anger or losing your temper kind of thing. Macro means long. The easiest way to say it is, he's long wicked. Have you ever heard anyone say that person's got a short wick? That means his two pokes and they're going to flip out on you. You ever have those other people, it seems like you could poke them all day and it isn't going to make a difference? Now, what is it? Because Jesus is an oaf. He's rich in patience. And you know why we have a problem with that? Because we're beggars in that arena. Let's be honest. We feel like we're a hero when we didn't fly off, when someone did something once. And there we are like Peter saying, So should we forgive them even up to seven times? And we think we're a hero. And he goes, how about 70 times seven? And you know, don't we do the math? We think, all right, so that's 490. I mean, let's face it. The fact that we do the math tells us that we're actually measuring whether or not we're going to do it right. Here's the problem. To forgive literally means to cast away and abandon. You can never have number two... If you are forgiven the first time. Because every time is the first time. Did you get that? There's the problem. And you know what tells us that God, when he forgives, chooses to remember no more? So have you ever tried to remind God of what he's chosen not to remember? Think about that. Oh God, I said I'd never do this again. And God's like, you know, he could, and out of kindness he could say, I don't even know what you're talking about. But God, remember when I was... God's like, why would you want to remind me of that? Because he's rich. And he'll tell you, he could be rich in a thousand things. We'd like to talk about how he is the cattle on a thousand hills, unless you've ever driven by a cattle on a thousand hills, or even a thousand cattle on one hill. Then I think, oh God, thank you that heaven is open, because that smells so bad. And we tend to use that when someone's like, I need a bill to pay and I just need to seek the Lord. Well, he's got the cattle on a thousand hill; Have him sell a cow. And then I think, but what we need is this wealth here. His goodness, his forbearance, and his long-suffering. Now, hear me out. This is addressing a self-righteous group of people who have none of these things. They have no patience they're not long-suffering. They're not demonstrating any goodness. What they are are cranky, fleshly people who think they're right before God because they do stuff. And God says, but you don't look like me when you behave like that. Now, for what it's worth, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Second Peter 3.9. And it says that the Lord is not slack as some count slackness. Same point is here. But He's patient not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Listen to this statement again. The Lord is not a slacker. God is not sitting on His great cosmic couch somewhere with a controller in His hands, yelling, Oh, Mom! He's patient. And He's patient because we need His patience. And because he's patient, follow me on this, he doesn't want you to perish. Now the idea of the text, contextually, of chapter of, of 2 Peter 3, is the idea of the Lord's return. Now follow me on this stream of thought for a second. And we may not get through the whole chapter, but that's a shocker for some of you. Why is not the Lord come back? That's the point. I mean, he said he was soon, right? It was like the last days, right? The last days that's what we look at and it's the day of the Lord that's coming. Joel promised it and it was about people speaking in tongues and acts two. That was from Joel. Come on! If those were the last days, we are like in the last millisecond. Tired of waiting. Really. Why is he waiting? Is he slacking? No. He's patient. Not wanting any to perish. So let me just ask you this. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ in the last five years? Raise your hand right now. Look around, you guys. If Jesus came back five years ago, they wouldn't have come with us. Okay, how about this? How many of you have given your life since the year 2000? Raise your hand. So those who raised your hand would still raise your hand, right? There's just more people now. From the year 2000 onward, raise your hand if you've given your life to Christ. Big hands up. If Jesus came back before the year 2000, all y'all would still be down here. Aren't you thankful he waited? Now you want to tell him to hurry up. So follow me on this. and I'm not preaching this as doctrine, but I'd like you to think about it for a second. What if, what if the Lord knows, and he would, the very last person that would say yes to him without something as radical as a rapture? and he knew who that person was. And when that person says yes to him, let's go home. And he's just waiting. And he knows what that person, right? What if that person's in this room? Will you give your life to Jesus Christ tonight? I, let's, let's get this done with. Let's get moving. If you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you will have that opportunity, friends you will have that opportunity tonight. And if we don't go home tonight when you say yes, then it's someone else. How do I know if it's not me? Well, say yes and let's find out. (laughs) Now, I'm nasty, I'm rotten, I do drugs, I'm horrible, I'm a miserable person. Will Christ forgive me? Chapter 1 says yes. I'm amazing. I open my mouth and angels sing. I write... I feel like I write scripture. The Pope calls me for advice. You need saving too. He'll save you just as much. So do you despise these things? And here's the thing. God is rich in things you would despise. Could you imagine? Now, if you had a One Direction collection, the figure dolls, action figures, all of their videos, CDs, DVDs, right? all of the posters, And you were rich in one direction. I would not envy you. I would not go, Oh, come on, I wish I... No, I wouldn't. If you had all the coffee in the world, I will not envy you. I'm not a coffee drinker. There are several things. If if you like country music, and you have all of Slim Whitman, Dwight Willie, Twink Winkies stuff, Divorce Me COD on the back of a train car, I'm not going to be jealous of you. I could, forgive me for saying, even despise your riches because I wouldn't want them because in the simplest sense, I don't like them and they don't apply to me. Now, I'm not telling you you're going to hell for drinking coffee or listening to that music. That's up to you. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, those are riches that don't apply to me and therefore they're unimportant. But if you're self-righteous, you tend to think that God's patience doesn't apply to you. You get it? you tend to think that God's kindness doesn't apply to you. You tend to think that God's forbearance doesn't apply to you. Now, can I say, here's the danger. Both sides can hate each other just as much. Because the, the new rich that just got saved could look at the old rich and go, those snobs! Right? But in the end of it all, sooner or later... God will bring you to a point no matter where you're at, if you're honest enough with yourself and willing to let him to say what Paul would say. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, he says this. This is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance. Let me say that again. This is a trustworthy saying. You can bank on this. Fully on, totally right. Worthy of full acceptance. Not just partially. Totally. vraiment. That Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am, arke, chief, the worst. Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, so that in me, that is the worst of sinners, chief of sinners, arke, the worst of sinners, Christ might display, listen, his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In other words, what Paul said is, and some of you can kind of say the amen with this, God saved me, so you couldn't possibly say God wouldn't save you. Somewhere you're going to look and go, if God saved Andrew, if God saved Pastor Tony, clearly he could save me. And if we're honest enough with ourselves, the part of actually enjoying Jesus' righteousness is we start to celebrate being forgiven. And Jesus says, whoever is forgiven much, loves much. And that's what lacks in a self-righteous person is there's nothing to love because they don't feel like... It's like, I was 99% and Jesus gave me a nudge into heaven. It's like, you know what? Jesus wasn't my crutch. He wasn't even my gurney. I was dead. Give a dead guy a crutch. Do you know what you have? A dead guy with a crutch. That's what you have. It's not going anywhere unless you're downhill. But you get the idea. The crutch isn't going to help you. Oh, Jesus is a crutch. Oh, yeah, you've got a beer in your hand and you're telling me how Jesus is a crutch. You're on your way to the porn shop and you're going to tell me about how Jesus is a crutch. And you're like, oh, I need that. It's been a rough day. And Jesus is my crutch. He took this dead, stinking, rotten, mortifying man that was miserable and angry and contagious and He made him alive and set him free. Jesus is my crutch. Jesus is my life. And He is my righteousness. And unless you can make that claim, you will never celebrate the God who saved you. So listen. But in accordance with the hardness and impenitence of your your impenitent heart, which means you are unwilling to repent. That's the word there. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath. Now, I want to compare. Now, listen. We just said God was rich. Remember that? Isn't it interesting the term he uses here? God is rich in patience. God is rich in being long-suffering. God is rich in actually being kind to you. You, on the other hand, what are you rich in? Oh, yeah, wrath. That's what you're rich in. So which one of you actually should despise the riches? Which riches should be despised? Do you get it? On the day of wrath and revelation, the righteous judgment of God, verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And you think, but wait a minute. Gordon, I thought that I was saved by grace. Exactly, what is this deeds thing now? Now understand, here's the dangerous thing. So you gave your life to Christ because he loved you, right? Not because he was contractually obligated, but because he loves you, right? And somewhere down the line, you know that he loved you so much, he was willing to cover all your sins. He was willing to give you his innocence for your guilt, to give you his purity for your filth. And then you go, oh, but now I've got to perform for God, right? I've got to perform for him. Why? So God won't hate me now. You know, here's the dangerous thing. Please follow me on this. Any other relationship you get in, we tend to put our trophies up in the front, the term I would use. In other words, you kind of figure out what they might like, and then you kind of bring in your things that are like that, right? Oh, what do you like, butterflies? I was once at this place, and we saw lots of butterflies. I mean, it's like you're just trying to connect on areas. Look at, you know, and what you're saying is, hi, like me, like me, like me, right? But the problem is, if you put all your trophies in the front window, that means as soon as you get past that point, all you're going to discover is the bad stuff, right? And that's, by the way, 99% of dating is, hi, here's all the good stuff, and now don't learn any more about me till we get married, right? And that becomes the problem, right? Well, the problem is, is that because we may be like that with other people, and we can even do that as friends with guys and gals with gals, and then we're not trying to get romantic, we just want guys to think we're cool. But even in all of that, you kind of know sooner or later they're going to learn you're kind of not as cool as even you wish you were. And then we go to Jesus. But here's the problem with God, is that he knows everything. You can never throw him a surprise party. You can't wrap something and go, I bet you won't know what this is. It's God. He knew it, but he actually gave you the money to buy it or the ability to make it. Right? That's who we're talking about. And here's the problem. When you got in a relationship with God, he's the only person in the universe who actually knew more about you than you did and actually still wanted to be in the relationship with you. If you knew half of who you were or I knew half of who I was, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with me. So someone's like, I just need to find myself. And I think, yeah, well, good luck with that. (laughs) I found myself. It was the scariest thing I ever saw. Praise God he got nailed to a cross. Are you following me on this? No, no, please walk with me on this for a moment. Because as we look at this text, something pretty crazy happens. Because it says he'll render to each one according to their deeds. Here's the most amazing thing. When I surrender to Jesus Christ, when Andrew surrendered to Jesus Christ, welcome back, bro. When, when, he, when he surrendered to Jesus Christ, Jesus came and he lived inside of him. According to Ephesians 1.13, the moment that he said, okay, God is so into him, he wanted to get into him. And he starts changing him from the inside out. Transforming the guy. And then he starts doing things. Have you ever had a moment where you were like, whoa, that was cool. God just did something through me. And you know, I mean, in the early days, you kind of go, yeah, way to go. I was a vessel. And then God's like, I'll humble you. We'll get to that point where you know it's just me, right? And you start realizing you're just a jersey he put on. For that, we should be thankful. But see, here's the crazy part. God said, why would he want to dump wrath on people he just saved from it? Do you get that? And that becomes the danger. So Jesus died for you and so he gave you his life and now he gave you his innocence and he gave you his purity and he, and, he, and he brought you into this engagement with him. The father adopted you and now made you his son. And ladies, son for all of you, by the way, because a son's a permanent member of the family, a daughter's temporary, so you're, even the ladies, you're all sons. The whole idea of that is he looks at you and you are a member of the family forever. And as that is the case, he looks and it's like, look at now I want to do great things with you so that the day that you stand before me, I could say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you understand, that's what God wants to bring. And you say, well, I thought that love keeps no record of wrongs. All our sins been washed away. Yes, well then what is it that he's going to bring before us at that point? What does it say in Revelation? That in, when the judgments were brought before him, that, that it says that the books were opened and the books of deeds were done. And imagine what it's like, because here's the crazy part. The self-righteous person will stand and say, I'm not that bad, and God will say, roll film. And I guarantee you it won't take long before they will agree with God they are that bad. There will be no person standing before God and saying, no, 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 give me what i got coming to me. I'm sure it's heaven. But strangely enough, what the believer should be is the other way around. And say, I'm not that good. I know that in me nothing good dwells. And God goes, but let me show you what I did with you, Deborah. Deleck, let me show you what I did with you. I took you and I brought you in front of kids that adore you. And they can't wait to see you again. Jenny, let me show you what I did through you. I picked you up and I threw you into the middle of France just so that I could show my glory to a group of people who followed you. Charlene, let me tell you what I did through you. I had you drag Delec all the way across over to Italy so she could watch how you've been set free because of how you let that go. Naomi, let me tell you what I did through you. I dragged you all the way from California to to this beautiful country so that other people could see another person willing to let go of everything to follow. Dash, let me tell you what I did through you. I pulled you out of Ireland, where you would say everybody's snakes, thieves, and liars. (laughs) I brought you here where you come faithfully and you, you smile, and I watch you grab the shoulder of another guy and pray. You forget about those moments. You know why you forget about those moments? Because you didn't do them anyways. God did. It's not like the jersey keeps track of all that. And here's the point, friends. When God rolls film, I think we're going to be the opposite. I think we're going to go and say, I'm not really that great. And God goes, no, but let me show you what I did. And you go, wow. And then it says, when a chief shepherd appears, we will receive a crown of life. And then I read in Revelation what the elders do with theirs. And I realize why. Imagine, Andrew, the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he gives you this crown and he shows you all that he did. And Andrew goes, as we would, this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to you. Could you see why we do that? It only makes sense. You know the crazy part is? how much of what we could rob ourselves of the film now. The crazier part would be if we actually aren't willing to do what he calls us to, to be the world changer he calls us to. And then somehow in all of that, we sat slabby and never worked out, stood before the Olympics and went, check me out, give me a medal. And they're like, who are you? Like the Lord's, like the the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe wants to go and do things through you. Could you imagine? Has he ever lost a battle? Has he ever lost a fight? Has he ever lost an argument? Has he ever lost anything? Jesus says that none would be lost. I realize that's where he wants to be, and it's like, you know what? I'm not going to be afraid of what deeds he brings before me. And I have no intent to stack up all the stuff he needs to burn away on the evil side of all this. I just want to be used in ways so that I can look back and go, oh, that was cool. Because I'll forget about the cool things God did today. And there were some really cool things God did today. And I'll forget about those tomorrow because he's got more. And my prayer is, And when God starts rolling film, it will be like one of those sagas, you know? It's like, just get comfortable, grab some popcorn, because it will be long. And it isn't because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a Christian like you. That's it. And here's the thing. More Jesus doesn't live in me than you. Except for this. How much of us lives in us? You know, that's the point, is how much room do we give him? Follow me as we move through this text. And understand, I recognize this is a pissy text. In other words, it's, it's the kind of thing you can't just grab the more and go, mmm, too. it's thick, so you need to kind of get through it. But the, the problem is is the theme is the same. So walk with me. Listen to what it says. And by the way, let me give you a couple quick verses as we move on to be honest. It says, for instance, that each one's work will become clear. This is 1 Corinthians 3.13. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Fire will test everyone's work. Listen, Matthew 25.23. When the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a few things. Now listen, now I'll make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In First Corinthians 4 or 5, it tells us that there will be a day when the Lord comes and he will, listen, 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 he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart or of hearts. And you go, uh-oh, listen to the next statement because it's the wackiest one after this. It says, then each one's praise is from God. And I think if it's hidden in my heart, it's probably bad. And if God's going to bring it to light, I think, could no one else at least be in the room? And he's like, but I've already paid for all that. There are things you've yet to discover that are in your heart that I'm going to show you and I'm going to praise you for it. Is that the weirdest thought? What kind of God we serve? Because if you knew this God the way that God is, we'd all freak out and start screaming. So listen. Listen. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But those who are self-seeking, and notice self-seeking is the idea of self-righteous, and do not obey the truth, obey unrighteousness, in indignation, and wrath. 7 through 11, here's the idea. You seek glory, you get glory, God's glory. You seek honor, you get God's honor. You seek immortality, you get life. And if that's the case, you get eternal life. If you seek immortality, you also get peace. And what I love is the word honor, because the word honor is the word timae, like Timmy. But the word means esteem. And here's the craziest part. Either you're going to seek God-esteem, or you're going to seek self-esteem. Self-esteem, by the way, let me tell you what you get for that, because the first thing it says is those who are self-seeking. You get indignation, which means you get dishonor. Those who don't obey the truth, they get wrath. Those who obey unrighteousness get tribulation. And those who do evil get anguish. So here's what you can get. You can either get glory, honor, and eternal life and peace, That's option A. Or option B, you could get indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. Is this a tough choice for any of you? And you'd say, why would God even do this? Because He wants you to choose. And the most funny argument to me is when someone says, if there's a God of love, why would He make a place like hell? And my my answer is, to make your choice easy. How could a reasonable person choose it? Imagine if I tell my children, you've got two choices, Disneyland or Spanking Land. What kind of loving dad would offer them Disneyland at all? One who loves them. Do you get it? Verse 12. As many who sin without the law, they'll perish without the law. How is that? I understand the idea of those who sin in the law, they perish in the law. The law stands to testify against them. Verse 15 makes clear why. It says that the people who don't have the law of God still have a different law, and that law is called their consciences. The Bible says whoever performs outside of faith is sin. Whatever is done outside of faith is sin. It's pretty simple. So in other words, if you're not sure, don't do it. It's that simple. But let's be honest. Katya, She's as much as we, I know of Katya, she's like a very lovely and very nice person. But imagine if I'm like, I don't know, but if I called her Poopsky, maybe that could hurt her. Well, let's just give it a shot and find out. Why would I do that if I cared for Katya? Does it make sense? Funny we do that with God, though. So the question is, could tennis ever be a sin? Well, I've seen some guys play tennis. Sure it is. Um... Any sport could possibly be, you should have been with us in basketball. Anything that is against your conscience is a sin. So can I just say this as well, though? Please don't play conscience soother to someone. And this can happen, and I've seen this happen in the Christian church. Someone says, I'm not really sure if that's okay. And someone says, oh, come on. It's just a little. It's not a... well, You realize what you're doing, right? They're saying, well, my conscience is making me uncomfortable about this. And you're saying, let's override your conscience. It's going to be okay. Do you really want to do that? It tells us, by the way, that in First Timothy 4.2, that there are those who speak lies and hypocrisy, that their own consciences are like seared with a hot iron. It means that they've been numbed and calloused. It tells us to the pure, all things are pure. In Titus 1, 5, to 15, it says, But to those who are unbelieving and defiled, nothing is pure, because even their consciences are defiled. You can pollute your conscience. You can sear your conscience. Or you can obey it. So listen, as we bring this around, and bring it, believe it or not, we'll actually bring it, because the rest of the text, thank you, Lord, is very simply that. On one side of it, there are those that actually don't have the written law, but God gave them their conscience. So they can never stand before God and say, I've never done anything wrong. And God says, you knew this was wrong and you did it anyways. To those who had the law and stood on the law, God says, well, it's very easy for you. I can quote verse and text for you. Versus, you know, you might say, well, Andrew, remember when you were 17? And you'd say, why bring that up? Because you said you were perfect. You're not know, And I know Andrew wouldn't say that. So he closes the deal by saying in 17 through 24 so what you think because you are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish a teacher of babes you think because listen because you teach at a university you believe because you teach at a seminary Because you are a pastor. Because you have reverend before your name. Because you have a really wanky TV show. Because somewhere down the line, people buy your MP3s and they download your sermons because of all of that. You think because of all of that, you're not going to stand under that same judgment? Notice that's what he's saying here. You're an instructor? A teacher? Please understand, a pastor is going to stand before God under the same judgment as you or worse, James 3.1 says, Brothers, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we should receive a stricter judgment. I do like that James says, We shall receive a stricter judgment. In other words, James knew he was. Please hear me on this. I know because we go straight through the Word, God's going to have the book on me. But by the grace of God, I stand before you and tell you, I need saving just like you do. And I plead the blood of Jesus just as much as you do. And because of that, hallelujah. So you think you're all of those things, and because of that, you think you're all that? You really think you did me a favor by being a pastor? You really think you, oh, you serve in children's ministry, God has a hotline to you, or whatever the case would be? Do you really think that God has, like, the, the massive phone line that's like, oh, I'm sorry, what's that? Your name again? Deborah, is that with a D? Hold, please. I'm like, what's that? Oh, bonsoir. That... Oh, Jeek, okay. Hold on, one Okay. Oh, hold on. Pastor Tony, hey, how's it going? You really think that's what's happening? Do you think I have a bat phone and like the rest of you are like on call waiting? Jesus calls me by name like he calls you by name. It isn't like he says, Andrew, Amina, Shirley, Tony. He doesn't do that. I do believe I'm his favorite. I just also believe you are too. So it ends with this. And I love how he plays on this and it could be easily mixed. In verse seventeen, he says, "So what you call yourself a Jew? Did you see that?" Here's the interesting thing. In the last verses, he says, "One of the reasons you call yourself a Jew is because of this rite of circumcision. Ah, you were baptized as a baby. You were circumcised as a boy. Ah, You know what? What does the poor girl get to claim? And and in all that, you get. And I don't want to be sick on that. But here's the interesting. Look at the last verse of the the scripture here. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly. He's a Jew who is one inwardly, not the circumcision of the heart." which is a cutting open, I'm sorry, not the circumcision of the flesh, but a cutting open of the heart and the spirit, not of the letter. And listen to this last statement, whose praise is not from men, but of God. What's the interesting part about that? What does the word Jew mean? Jew is short, you is short for Judah. The tribe of Judah was one of the tribes that was still clearly remaining after the captivity. And because of that, ultimately melds into the term Jew, short of Judah. Does anyone know what the name Judah means? It means praise. So what, you think you're a Jew? You think you're praise? Why? Because when you were eight days old, someone grabbed a knife? That was worth, that was praiseworthy? He says, God says, your praise could be for me, not for man. But I'll tell you what, I want your heart open to me. Dipping you in water isn't going to do anything if your heart's closed. All the Bible studies you've ever gone to doesn't mean anything if your heart's closed. What I want is a circumcised heart, a heart that is cut open so that I can actually get there. Because if you give me that, you will be a Jew in that sense. You will be my praise. Could you imagine God walking around heaven talking about Bruno? Come here, Gabriel. Check this out. Because remember how man looks at the outer appearance, but what does the Lord look at? The vav is the Hebrew word. It means the inside. So where is he looking? He's looking at your heart right now. You know, I can look and go, his eyes are getting a little joopy, whatever the case, but God's looking and he's going, hey, Michael, check out Allie. Look at her heart. Check out Bjorn heart you guys see this and all of a sudden everything and it's like god's praises in that because what he really wants to praise is an open heart crazy enough god doesn't have a problem with you having a closed mind as long as your mind is closed on you know, onto him but he wants you to have an open heart unto him as the what is the process So as we go to this chapter in conclusion and we go to prayer, think about what's been said. We've read through the whole chapter. On one side of it, you know you're unrighteous. God will make you righteous. Jesus makes you righteous. He makes you right. You think you're self-righteous? You ain't. Get over it. Jesus can make you righteous. Why would you want to earn what God would rather give you? And if you're busy trying to do it yourself, your heart will never be open. And that's how this works. So as we go to prayer, believers, those who have claimed Jesus Christ, who have embraced the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection, let's not let the heart ever seal. Right? Let's keep that heart open because he still has plans. How do I know that? Because if not, you would have breathed your last. I know when you're done, he'll take you home. Until then, you're in his prayer closet and he wants to put you on today, tomorrow. That's what he wants. Tonight when you get in your prayer closet you say, Lord, open my heart to you. Open my heart to those who might be old rich or new rich in you. Open my heart, Lord, that I would love those who don't know you, that I would want to see them know you. Because no matter what side of the spectrum they're on, you are an equal opportunity Savior. Oh, that's for you. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure, you could be. We're going to pray, and I'll give you an opportunity to respond tonight. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And I realize, Lord, that it even says there are those that, that even... Your name is blasphemed by the unbelievers because of these people who have been busy judging and doing the same things. Isaiah 52, five, Ezekiel 36.22, you've told us that. And I know that the world is looking for excuses not to believe in you. We just don't want to be guilty of giving them any. So Lord, I pray for those tonight who could think that, or maybe thought that they could stand on their own performance. Or even those who are just exhausting themselves, trying to make you happy, and they even belong to you. Tonight, God, tonight, resolve in their heart that this is about grace. And you are committed to loving them. That is not license to sin, but it sure is cause to celebrate. And then we would walk out of here overwhelmed by Your goodness and a heart to celebrate You as a result. Oh Lord, tonight, please, to Your beloved, Your own, may we resolve that. To those, Lord, who are still wrestling inside of themselves. I don't know about this Jesus thing, this Christianity or whatever, but tonight you've spoken to them. Your Holy Spirit's goading them to the cross. And, then, and somewhere in it, they know there's a battle going on and, and show them what they're fighting is love, your love for them. that They would surrender tonight. And if that is you, I'm going to pray a simple prayer and I ask you to listen. As you listen... What I would ask you to do is to ask yourself, can I say yes to that? As I pray this prayer now, I ask if you agree at the end, that you say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is God in heaven, I am not self righteous. I will not try to be right on my own terms, I will not try to be right on my own performance. But I admit to you first, I am not right. I'm not perfect. I've done wrong. I've thought wrong. I've intended wrong. That's who I am. But you love me anyways. And your scripture has made clear that anyone could be justified by your grace. And no one is righteous in your sight without it. And that includes me. So tonight... I openly accept the gift that you've offered Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who took the penalty of my sins and bore them on the cross so that they could be fully paid, so that I don't have to spend eternity away from you. And as he died on that cross, my, punish- my punishment, my penalty died with him. And I accept that. And as you rose again from the grave three days later, just like your scripture promised, He offers me new life as the architect of my reinvention, as the Lord and Savior, master of my life. So in the humble repentance of my mind and heart, I ask you to cut open my heart and make a home there. And I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior and my ransom. Have me now. I'm yours. I may not understand anything else about Christianity, but if that's what it's about, I say yes. Have me now. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.